0: Well, it's great to be with you this morning. As I think you know by this stage, by the purple everywhere, we're in Advent. And this is the time of our calendar where we're waiting for Jesus. We're remembering that first time that they were waiting for Jesus before that first Christmas. But we're also waiting for Jesus to come again in that moment when God will make all things new and make all things right. And the Bible is full of visions of the end when God makes all things right. And when we're talking about the end, uh, we sometimes use this fancy word eschatology, which is just the word for talking about the end or our understanding of the end. And in our readings today from Isaiah 65, we get a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. This language of new heavens and new earth might be something you more associate with Revelation, Revelation 21, which we read in Easter, but it's all throughout the Bible and here in Isaiah, centuries before Jesus uh, was on earth. And whenever we're talking about the end or eschatology, you might be tempted to think that this is like a theological curiosity that people up at Gordon-Conwell might want to argue about, but doesn't really affect our lives today, or... Perhaps you kind of associate it with like online conspiracy theories that there's the mark of the beast in every vaccine, 666 behind every corner, and May the 14th, 2014, he's coming on that exact date. And we should be rightly cautious about overly specific interpretations about exactly how uh, the, the end is going to be. But the truth is, our eschatology, our understanding of the end, is deeply important to what it means to be a Christian and what we're doing uh, as a church, as Christians, because it's about vision. It's about direction. You've maybe had the experience of being in different environments or workplaces, somewhere where there is a clear and coherent vision, and everyone is working together towards that goal, achieving great things. But perhaps also being in environments where there isn't a clear vision and people are working at cross purposes, sometimes working against each other. One example I'm aware of, because I'm a spaceflight nerd, is, is NASA. In the 60s, they had this clear vision to put someone on the moon and they achieved it in eight or nine years. And that's 50 years ago now, and it still feels like that is the most significant achievement they've had because since then, their vision has been meandering and changing every four or eight years. It's more complicated than that. I can talk to you more about that over a long meal because I have a lot to say. Um, or perhaps you've had the experience of uh, like writing an essay for school or something, and you reach a point where it suddenly becomes clear where you're actually going and what your conclusion is going to be. And then the rest is much easier to write. If you're like me, you just write a whole bunch of garbage for a while until some conclusion comes out, and then you go back and rewrite towards that conclusion. The truth is, we can't really understand something until we know its end. We can't really grapple with our own humanity until we grapple with the fact that we will die. In, uh, in math, you're going to get a few geeky references in this uh, sermon. In math, there's a concept of a, of a vector, which is like an arrow. It has a length and it points in a direction. And if we think about our hearts kind of as a vector, Jesus gives a lot of examples which are kind of saying that it doesn't matter the magnitude, the strength, the size. What matters is, is it in the right direction? Is it aligned with the kingdom of God? When he says, "If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to jump into the sea, and it will," he is saying that it doesn't matter the size of your faith, the power of your faith. What matters is it aligned with what God is doing in the kingdom. Is it pointed in the right direction? When the the people are given ten talents, five talents, one talent, it doesn't matter how many talents they're given. It's Are they pointing it towards the kingdom of God? When the Pharisees are putting huge amounts of money into the temple treasury, it doesn't matter how much they're giving it because their hearts are not aligned with the kingdom of God compared to the poor widow who puts two copper coins into into the treasury because her heart is in tune with what God is doing. We're called to be people whose start is rooted at the start of God's story. And we are pointed towards the end of God's story, what he's heading us towards, aligned with what God is doing in history. And it doesn't really matter whether we have great gifts or great strengths or great abilities. Are we in line? Are we pointed towards the end that God has for us? It's like that old experiment with iron filings in a magnetic field. When that magnetic field turns on, the iron filings line up. They know which way is south. They know which way is north and they line up with it. And if you look in the iron filings and there's bits that don't line up, you know that those are bits of dust and dirt that somehow got into the iron filings. We need to have a clear vision of where we're going, what this is all about so that we can line up with what God is doing, um, like iron filings in that magnetic field. So what is that vision? What are we pointed towards? Well, uh, turn with me to Isaiah 65. I think it's going to come up on the screen. And we're going to look through this um, a little bit more closely. For behold, I create... The first thing here is God makes this new reality. It's not ours to create. We don't create the magnetic field. We line up with it, pointed in the right direction. But this takes the burden off of us to create this new reality and counteracts a lot of philosophies in the world, which really looks to us as humanity, as the authors of our own destiny. But we know that we are called to be in line with the destiny that God has made for us. I create a new heavens and a new earth. A new earth is made. Sometimes there's this idea that the ultimate end of the Christian hope is escaping earth into some sort of immaterial heavenly reality. But that is never the biblical vision. It is a renewed earth. And the truth is, our, our future hope, our future reality is not actually that unlike our current reality. And so what we're seeking in this current reality is, is not that unlike of what we would expect in that future reality. This is why we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, an embodied physical, material reality where we are seeking uh, seeking the things of God but also creating a new heavens. This isn't just about, you know, Israel getting a more powerful kingdom with a more powerful king and the geopolitics of the time. This is about a cosmological newness where things are entirely renewed. And then note here, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is about deep and complete reconciliation in a way that we don't experience in our world right now. You know, whenever we try to deal with something in our current reality, there's always kind of strings attached. There's always little bits left over. So whenever someone says, oh, we're not going to go back to that. We're not going to think about that anymore. It can feel like a bit of a threat because we know that there's still some residue of stuff that has not been dealt with, but not so in God's kingdom. The former things, the things of the broken, unjust world shall not be remembered because it has been truly and thoroughly dealt with, forgiven, washed away so that we can be pointed forward into God's ultimate future in joy. And that's the next thing. This kingdom is oriented towards joy, but be glad and rejoice. I create Jerusalem to be a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Though in this present reality we experience suffering and rightly mourn and rightly lament, we are pointed towards joy. We know that our direction is joywards. Joy is our ultimate end. And then it starts talking about life. No more shall there be uh, in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. There is this profound statement that life is good. Length of life is good. Seeing through a mirror dimly of the eternal life that we're called to live. You know that that whether it is a young person dying suddenly or an older person dying in their bed or surrounded by family, death is always a tragedy and life is always our purpose. There's something perhaps particularly important to remember in our current pandemic, which is affecting our older brothers and sisters more than our younger ones. That life at every stage is good. And death is always a tragedy, and we need to be defenders of life at every stage. Then in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards, eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In our current reality, there is not the justice People do not get the fruits of their labor. Some people do very little and have great abundance. And some people work hard and diligently their whole life only to end up with nothing because we do not live in an equal and just world. We live in a world where your birth circumstances are more determinative of your outcome than, than what you actually do and have in your life. Not so in this kingdom. In this kingdom, there is perfect equality, perfect justice, perfect uh, connection between what you build and what you have. This is a just world, and this is the justice that we need to be seeking in our current world as we are oriented towards uh, this kingdom. And then we have, they shall not labor in vain, nor bear children in calamity. This is referring back to Genesis 3. when Genesis 3, there is the curse on, hu- on humankind, where there should be hardship, With the labor trying to get the fruit out of the field. And there should be hardship with the labor bringing out the fruit of the womb. That was the curse. But if this was a Harry Potter spell, it would be called cursus reversus. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. This is rolling back the curse. And you might be surprised to see the role of work in this ultimate vision of the future. But this is all throughout the Bible. Work is not some necessary evil. Work is actually part of our redemptive humanity that has been tainted by the fall. But before the fall, Adam was put into the garden to work it and keep it. It is part of who we are as humans. In other visions of the end, spears are beaten into plowshares and swords are beaten into pruning hooks, implements of work. Now, in our current situation, work can be deeply dehumanizing and frustrating and against our our flourishing, but that is not so from the beginning. We are called to do meaningful work, having our human potential and creativity born out in in this kingdom. And then in verse 24, we get a vision of our intimacy with God. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. This is like a couple who know each other so well that they don't need to say what they're thinking. Uh, they They just know before we even think to ask something from God, he has provided for us. We are seeking this intimacy and closeness with God who is the center of this new creation. And finally, The cosmic end of violence. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But note, dust shall be the serpent's food. The devil and his evil are finally defeated. But this is pointing to a reality. We no longer are we governed by by a sense of a zero-sum game, that there is these scarce resources and somebody else's gain is a threat to my own ability to gain. Therefore, if I want to get ahead, I need to bring the other person down. That is not so in this kingdom because we see the abundance of God and that there are no limits to what God can give. So we are co-inheritors with our neighbors, being able to stand alongside them as neighbors, seeing them as no threat to our prosperity and flourishing. And be able to walk together without the violence that has governed human history. This is a good vision. This is a powerful vision of of what we are made to be. It's what we are to be seeking now and what we are to be oriented towards as God creates his new creation. But it raises the question what are we actually oriented towards? What are we actually pointed towards? What's our practical eschatology? What are we really seeking in our lives? Because it might be like on a personal level, what we're really seeking is comfort. the, The right to sort of dismiss anything that might stress us out and to have everything we think we need at arm's length. Or success, career success, relational success, wealth, acclaim, generational memory, people remembering us for doing great things. Or perhaps on like a global level, when we think about what is humanity pointed towards, perhaps we have a sort of a political vision of of what we're seeking of global democracy or a set of political narrative or ideology that we just think is better. And that's what we're, we're seeking to see enabled around the world with time. That's what we're pointing towards or some sort of technological ascendancy that, that through our, Innovation, we are in technology, we will achieve these great things and our destiny is to be made great by our technology. Or perhaps we're governed by ideologies of of our destiny, which is cyclic. This idea that history just repeats and nothing really ever changes uh, given enough time destined just to repeat itself. Or perhaps your practical eschatology is, is rooted in a type of hopelessness. That you believe that the trajectory of history is long, but it bends towards injustice. That things are destined just to get worse. Or that humanity is destined just to destroy itself and there just to be silence afterwards. You know, the great fear in the 20th century of of nuclear war, the great fear in the 21st century of climate change and in the 22nd century, aliens or something. I don't know, like this, this idea that we will destroy ourselves. But the truth is, any of these visions of the end that are not God's and are put in the place of where God's vision ought to be are idols. And the problem with idols is always the same. They demand sacrifices and cannot give what they promise to give. They take a great cost and do not give what they are offering. An example, perhaps, of a failed eschatology is the trope of a midlife crisis. The idea that there's this particular vision of how your life should be, and you achieve all those things, and you realize that it is not giving you what your soul needs. So you burn it to the ground and start again making the same mistakes all over again. Our eschatology, our vision of the end has great consequence for our life. And in comparison with these idols which demand sacrifices and cannot give what they promise, God is the one who has sacrificed himself for us and is powerful to do what he has promised. And in fact, has already shown us this kingdom. This is not like a CEO giving a 10-year plan, being overly optimistic. We talk about Jesus and his resurrected body as the first fruits of the new creation, which means this is the difference between hearing a rumor that the harvest is going to be good this year, and someone coming to you with the sheaves of the harvest saying, look and see the harvest is good. We have seen his body. The kingdom has come and is coming. The kingdom has come in and Jesus and his resurrection is coming through the spirit in his church. This is a secure hope on a present and future reality that God is making. This hope is greater than just a wish for something to be better. This is something God has already given us and shown us. It is a secure hope that can solve our anxiety in an overly anxious world. In Advent, we wait for Jesus's coming. We wait for God to make things right. And the Bible is full of visions of the end. And this is not just for curiosity. This matters and affects our lives. We need to be rooted at the start of God's story and oriented, pointed towards the end. We need to notice where bad eschatology, which is not God's, is affecting our lives and and recognize the cost of those things and be a people who are seeking God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, partnering with one another, not seeing each other as enemies as we seek life, justice, joy, meaningful work, knowing that the world and our own strength cannot create this, but seeking intimacy with the God who is recreating all things. And in that, have a secure hope, which calms our anxiety. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your vision of a good kingdom, Lord God. Your vision of the end. Help us to see it clearly, and to align ourselves with it, that we might have life. Amen.